Ah, Josiah, was that not one of the best feasts yet? Josiah had to laugh at his friend's love of excitement. Yes, Eleazar, there was sure a lot going on this year. They were making their way from Jerusalem back to their homes in Capernaum. They had wound their way down from Jerusalem to the river where they would now climb all the way up to and around beautiful Lake Galilee. Josiah didn't mind the walk much at all, even if it took three days. The desert made a stark contrast with the lush beauty surrounding the lake, and of course, it was always a pleasure to get to his home. He was lost in an image of his beautiful wife as she sat in the shade of the trees on their terrace, laughing, their son in her lap, with the cool lake breezes gently putting their hair into motion, when Eleazar interrupted him. Well? Well, what? Ah, don't you ever listen? Eleazar grew loud in his excitement. Jesus! What did you think of Jesus? Josiah could see the servants, both his and his friends, look their way and then quickly away again. Oh, they were excited. The masses always wanted somebody who will solve their problems. Eleazar, he scolded in mockery. How many times have we had a Messiah show up to get all the rabble excited? He said that last to keep the servants in check. Who was it everybody was excited about last year? Oh, yes, John. And where is he now? John doesn't count, Eleazar laughed. There was really nothing serious to his friend. Doesn't count? Why not? Everybody was going out to see him. Yeah, to take a bath in a dirty river. They both laughed at this. But, Eleazar continued, he was always up for an argument. He never claimed to be the Christ. In fact, said he wasn't, that he was waiting for him as well. That's just good marketing. We've had so many Christs that no one would believe you if you said you were one anymore. Better to claim to know one than to be one. Ah, but there's one more thing. Now Josiah knew what Eleazar was doing. He was building up to a huge mockery. This Jesus performs, he paused, and made a huge sweeping arc with his hands, and he thundered, Miracles! They both guffawed, laughed until their sides hurt. Josiah didn't care that his servants heard him. In fact, he continued partly for their benefit. Why do these people always want to believe the impossible? Hey, his friend was on a roll. They want another Moses. Or maybe Elijah and Elijah and Moses all rolled into one. Josiah joined him in the derision. And don't forget David and Solomon and, while you're at it, Samuel and Isaiah and Daniel too. Yeah, but he seems to have gotten Herod's number. Did this man's mockery know no end? Eleazar, don't ridicule the king. King? He wishes. Ha! Huh, that's it. You're afraid your friend will get usurped by this upstart from Nazareth. No, Josiah thought for a moment. Besides, this guy's all about religion. He's always talking about God and worship and living right. We live pretty right, Eleazar laughed. Yes, they were wealthy and powerful and... After all, might makes right. And so the next few days went, just enjoyable times with his good, if flippant, even insolent friend. But Josiah became, as he always did, more anxious to get home to his wife and son the closer they got. He was hardly any company at all as they came around the north side of the lake and drew near to Capernaum. He could see the walls of their estate for the last few miles and hurried on until he rushed through the gate and into the arms of his bride. But after a few moments, he stepped back. Where's Nathaniel? Oh, he doesn't feel too good. Probably something he ate. Come, you must see him. And so they went to his room. The servants parted as they entered, and Josiah went straight to the bed. 
Nathaniel smiled as he tousled his hair, but he was clearly not feeling well and soon fell asleep. But as the next few days passed, he did not get better. He was soon in a constant sweat and moaning and crying day and night. And this night, it grew even worse. He simply laid there, eyes hollow. The best physicians had come and gone, and none had any answer. Now they just said to be prepared. Prepared? Prepared for what? The end of all his hopes? All he had was to be this child, and now this child would be no more? This child, that was all he had. Josiah's eyes mirrored those of his son. As life drained from Nathaniel, any reason to live left him. Master, the chief of his servants softly spoke to him. Josiah did not even look up. Master, the child dies. This made him react. He had almost no emotion left, but enough to muster some anger. How dare he say this so blatantly and right at the child's bed? He turned to berate him, but was interrupted. Master, perhaps it need not be so. This man had been a servant to his father. He had always been trustworthy. Although Josiah could not find a way to form words, the desperate, aching need in his soul must have shown through enough that his servant continued. We are told that Jesus of Nazareth has returned to Galilee. In fact, is in Canaan now. The servant correctly read his confusion. What possible meaning could there be in this? He continued, but most cautiously, What if the stories of his healing people are true? Now Josiah did find his voice. In fact, he yelled, How could you speak such foolishness to me? My son lies dying and you spout such filthy nonsense to me? Do you mock my pain? What is the point of this idiocy? The servant bowed. In fact, Nelton bowed and then looked up at Josiah's face as if to measure him. Sir, I heard all you spoke with your friend as we came from the feast, but I also heard much at the feast. What if the stories are true? The tirade, brief as it was, had worn Josiah out. He sat again at the edge of the bed. Defeated, he just listened. Do you remember the wedding in Cana where we first saw Jesus? Actually, he had forgotten. But now it came back to him as his servant went on. The servants there, men to whom I would trust my life, say that he changed water into wine. Josiah did not know what to make of this. Sir, if that is true and my friends would not lie to me, then perhaps these stories are true as well. Perhaps this Jesus could save your son. Josiah wavered, and the faithful steward knew it. Master, there is nothing to lose. Still, Josiah could not commit to the thought. If we do nothing, this child, whom I also love, dies. What reason could there be not to try? Try. At least here, there was something he could do. Why not? Why not try? He nodded and then stood with resolution. We must go. Prepare the child. The servant did not move, and he looked at him to see the reason and was surprised to see shock on his face. Master, we cannot move the child. He will die quickly if we do. Then how is he to be healed if we can't bring him to the one who can do it? Josiah was exasperated. Sir, we must bring the healer to him. Of course. The doctors came here. Why could not a prophet? At first he thought of sending this servant, but then he realized that what he needed more than anything was to take some action. Besides, if he went himself, the request would carry all the more weight. And if he was going to take this action, then he should take it to the full. 
Prepare all I will need for the trip. I will leave within the hour. Master, you will travel at night? It will take me a full day's journey to reach Cana and another day to get the prophet there. Do you think the child will live that long? He understood immediately, bowed and left to prepare. And so Josiah found himself on the road with nothing but the moonlight and two strong young servants to accompany him. If he was honest, there was also no real hope in him, at least so little he could hardly tell it was there. The hours of darkness passed uneventfully and quickly. The long climb up to Cana he had made many times, but at night, with the weight on his heart, it seemed like he was trudging in a foreign land, in a completely alien world. It was almost a surprise that the eastern sky began to turn silver and people began to appear in the road to hear them speak in a language he knew. And again and again they were speaking of the same thing, the prophet Jesus and the miracles he was doing. He didn't have to ask where Jesus was. Everyone seemed to be going to or coming from there. And slowly, ever so slowly, as he overheard story after story, he began to think it might be true. Perhaps there was hope. But also, as the crowd grew, he saw that he was vastly different from these people, from those who believed. And not just in his wealth. They believed, really believed that there was actually a prophet in Israel again. Again. The truth is that Josiah had never believed there ever were prophets. I mean, they were great stories, and he loved them when he was a child, but really, did anyone actually believe this? These people did. Could this man actually be what the old stories said the others were? And if he was, would he know that Josiah did not believe? Had never really believed? All these doubts began to assail him, but he was committed now. He also began to be aware that people were casting sidelong glances at him. What was this rich guy doing walking down the road with the rest of us? Where were all his servants? Soon enough, he was working his way through the crowd. Most of the people moved out of his way when they saw he was coming through. For the first time, he recognized they did and realized that he received this honor only because he was rich. This prophet was a working man. Would Jesus, as many others did, disdain him because he was rich? More and more doubts attacked him. But now he was near him, only steps away. Josiah didn't know what to think of him. He looked like, well like any of a thousand other Jewish laborers. But he didn't talk like anyone Josiah had ever heard. And now one of his disciples was coming towards him. He scanned Josiah up and down as if to measure him, but he was polite as he bowed slightly. Sir, what do you seek? Strange question. But then maybe everyone who came to Jesus was seeking something. But as he formed the words, he was shocked by the emotion that overtook him. Yes, he was sleep-deprived, but he knew it was mostly the great fear of losing his son. He foolishly, in way louder than he meant to, blurted out, My son, my son is dying! Please, please, I need Jesus to come to Capernaum with me. When he said Jesus' name, he instinctively looked towards him, and because of his outburst, everyone, including Jesus, looked at him. And that's when the ridiculousness of his request hit him. There were literally thousands of people here, all trying to see Jesus, all looking for some kind of miracle. Why in the world would he leave all these just to save one little boy? And then Jesus spoke to him, to him, but with that volume and tone of voice that many wanted everyone to hear. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Yes, 
Josiah had to admit that all he wanted was a wonder. But what else was he to want? He fell to his knees, spread his arms out and begged, Sir, come down before my child dies. There was a pause that seemed like an eternity to him. And then Jesus spoke again. Go, your son will live. And with that, Jesus turned back to those he had been teaching. So what? He wouldn't come? Josiah was not sure what this meant. Had he been dismissed with just a hollow promise? Could Jesus do nothing so he would only claim to heal his precious son? Who would ever know if he didn't? In that moment, he felt that his soul in anguish would rip from his chest. He looked up to Jesus. He was going to cry out, Help me! But then Jesus glanced his way and Josiah for the first time looked deep into his eyes. There was a fire there that nearly stopped Josiah's heart. A fire of love unlike any he had ever seen before. It was so fierce that it burned at his very soul. Every thought he had, even his desperate need, melted away in the crucible of that love. And then it all flooded back and suddenly Josiah knew Nathaniel would live. As Jesus moved away, Josiah suddenly felt all the weariness of the last few days as if it were a weight on his back. Even if he could, there was no point in risking his life and the life of his servants by traveling through the night again. He struggled to his feet and to the home of a friend where he collapsed onto the welcome bed. The next morning they hurried toward home, but as they were on their way down, Josiah looked up and to his surprise saw some of his own servants coming toward them. There was clear joy in their faces as they told him Nathaniel was out of danger and recovering. Yes! Fantastic! Wonderful! Incredible! When? When did he start to feel better? When they told him the time Josiah couldn't breathe, it was exactly when Jesus had said, Your son will live. He fell to his knees and began to weep uncontrollably. Suddenly he believed, really believed, Master, Master, what is it? I have seen him. I have seen the Messiah. The Apostle John wrote his gospel, his good news of Jesus, to bring people to believe in Jesus and to strengthen those who already believe. And it's no surprise then that many of the stories he includes focus on how the people in them came to understand who Jesus is. John the Baptist, well, of course he already knew, the disciples, the servants at the wedding in Canaan, and there was Nicodemus and the woman at the well, along with all those other Samaritans that we considered. The story that we look at today shows us a man coming to faith in Jesus and the means by which God drew him. Unlike my fictional account, John's is very concise. Just 11 verses, 253 words total. In the English translation, we will consider Jesus' words are but 15 total. 15 words, that's all Jesus speaks. We don't even know the names of any of the people except Jesus. And yet, there is an astonishing amount of life packed into this one paragraph. It's just one paragraph. So let's take a look at the real, the biblical account. John starts with a transition, of course. After the two days he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. Or first, what two days? 
Jesus was in Samaria where he had revealed himself to the woman at Jacob's well and then, at the request of many others in that town, stayed to preach and teach and probably, this is Jesus, perform miracles. And who are we kidding? Jesus himself is a miracle. A walking miracle. So after two days of a non-stop living miracle living among them, he left them for Galilee. <laughs> but wait a minute. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, which is down south in Judea, and raised in Nazareth, which is in Galilee up north. Neither city is anywhere near Samaria. So why would he leave because a prophet has no honor in his own hometown? <laughs> For what are prophets known? Well, their name comes from prophecy, saying things that can only be supernaturally known. Some of them, like Elijah, also performed miracles. And here's a really sad truth. People get used to miracles. You know what we're like. You long for a better car. And then one day it finally happens. You get a brand new car. And within a week you're pretty much used to it. <laughs> a new house. Or maybe a month. Maybe even a year later. But it just becomes normal. There are people who build, build a business. They become millionaires. They lived on burgers and crabs. But now steak and lobster just seem normal to them. People get used to having a prophet around. And then they expect them to do what prophets do. They are no longer excited just to have the Messiah with them. They begin to think he's supposed to be there. They start to look for the miracle and then stop looking to the author of the miracle. Some years ago, there was a famous televangelist who would say, Expect your miracle today! Be excited because today there's a miracle in your life. Wouldn't it be better to be excited because the presence of the God of the miracle is with you each and every day? People get tired of the prophet because they don't really want to hear his message. They just want to see the signs. And who are we kidding? They want to be beneficiaries of the signs. They want their daily miracle. Expect your miracle? What is the purpose of a miracle? Think of it. God created a world that he tuned to such an incredibly fine degree that what he wants to happen in this world happens day after day, thousands of years after he set it in motion. Physical events were set in motion at creation that are happening today. Political events, simple life events, all orchestrated in the providence of God from the very beginning. Why would he interrupt this beautifully choreographed flow with a miracle. Clearly, to remind people that He is here. As they forget, a miracle's primary purpose is to point towards God, to be a sign that points to the spiritual, not the physical, a sign that leads to Christ. So Jesus, to keep the Samaritans from forgetting to honor Him, leaves them and heads to the general area where he grew up. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. 
They were excited to welcome Jesus. Why? They saw Jesus' works, His miracles, and they were fantastic. Eventually, we find out that they were so busy watching the signs that He did, they missed seeing Jesus. But for the moment, they were excited, so He came again to Cana in Galilee, where He had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. Okay. John gives his readers enough of a introduction here that they know everything, but we really don't know the area. So when we look at this map, we get an overview of the entire Palestine area that's from about that time, the time of Christ. And we can see in the south there is Judea down here. And you see Jerusalem and there's Bethlehem and all that down here. There's Samaria in the middle. And up at the top is Galilee. Well, these, these would all be like counties to us. That's how we might want to think of them. And they're about that size, the size of our larger counties. Now, looking at the close-up of the northern area, we can see where this story took place. Jesus went up to the area of Galilee, and he probably came through Nain and then through Nazareth, and he ends up at Cana. Down here is Capernaum, clear downhill at the lake. Cana is way up in the mountains. So it's a long walk up through to get to Cana from there. So Jesus has wound his way to Cana, and our official uh, lives down by the beautiful, uh, very large. Uh, Lake Galilee is a, also called the Sea of Galilee. It's a huge, huge uh, lake. In the story I made up, he would have traveled after the feast all the way from the mountains around Jerusalem in the far south down to the river, and then clear up to his home in Capernaum, nearly at the top of the Sea of Galilee. It's at least a three-day journey from there. From Capernaum to Cana would be about a day's walk. Now, you may have wondered why I made the father in the story a Jew who did not believe. It's because the term translated official was used for a Jew who worked for the Romans. It's real hard to imagine a believing Jew that would work for the Romans. <laughs> okay? So most people think, no, he, he doesn't believe. But he knew enough to know Jesus' reputation. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. The official had to get to the point of desperation before he finally realized that only God could help. And suddenly it didn't feel silly to believe in miracles anymore. Have you ever reached the point where you were ready to cry out to God for help? Did you notice that you had to be in the midst of a crisis before you finally came to Jesus? We often find this is true in salvation. One pastor used to say, no one comes to Christ without a crisis. I mean, is it true? Are we really that shallow as human beings? <laughs> well, yes. <laughs> Do we only come to Him even now that we believe when we are dependent on Him for help? You know, I hope that's not true, at least not all the time. So this man, this official, in his desperation, cries out to Jesus for help. And he, as always, Jesus speaks the most unexpected thing. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. <laughs> not the thing I would have expected him to say after making my request like that. And it must have stabbed at that guy's heart. He knew he didn't believe. Not until he had to. 
Is Jesus putting him down? No, that's not like Jesus, not who he is. It can't be that. Perhaps it's simply to make him and the crowd around him understand their weakness, their need. Do some people need signs and wonders before they can believe? Well, apparently, we need signs and wonders before we can believe. Why can't we just accept Jesus at his word? Well, whatever the case. This man is driven by his desperate need. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. So the man is driven by his desperate need, a need that Jesus uses to draw him to himself. Remember what I said about the world being created and actions happening and all that? Do you realize that when God created the world, he created it so that little boy would get sick? At just that time, when Jesus was going to be in Canaan of Galilee. That boy being sick drove that man to Jesus, the providence of God. Amazing truth. In his desperation, he sought out Jesus and begged him for help. A rich man begging a common laborer for help. When was the last time you were so desperate that you begged God for help? How desperate are we for our loved ones who don't believe? And we've heard them, the stories of people who prayed for their children to be saved 30, 50 years before it finally happened, as Wayne mentioned last night. Grandmother prayed for him we pray in desperation every day for the eternal lives of our unsaved loved ones what about this community this church which this community desperately needs when did you last cry out to God for the people who are sitting here when did we last cry out to God for our nation more important. <laughs> we have to ask ourselves, do we recognize the importance of these requests? No, that first our official believed only the word Jesus spoke. Believe the word. He shallow. <laughs> he was more self focused than God focused. Then again it's not my son dying, so Still, we do have to ask, did he not figure out who it would take to meet his need? And yet, Jesus addressed his need. He did. He gave him the answer he needed. And we, Jesus' representatives on this earth, need to address people's needs before we can expect them to be able to hear the message. Remember that old expression, people don't care what you know until they know you care? Our official believed Jesus' word, and as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed, and all his household. When he knew that the miracle had actually occurred, then he believed, not just in his word, but in Jesus. He believed in the author of the miracle, not just the miracle itself. Often when we meet people's needs, then they can hear the good news of Jesus and believe. 
there are individuals whose needs we must meet so that they can believe. Uh, but we can't know hearts like Jesus did. Sometimes we may meet people's needs and find out that all they were doing was using us. We have to be smart, but isn't it worth taking the occasional chance <laughs> just in case they might believe? In this official's case, the belief didn't stop with him. All his household believed as well. Now, first, we have to understand that cultures are different. In theirs, nearly all decisions were group decisions. Still the same in many societies here. It's more individualized. But even here, when any person comes to Christ, we tend to see many more follow him or her. Question. Do you understand the influence you have? As a parent who believes, have you had an influence on your kids for Christ? These kids sometimes are followed by their parents into belief too. And the influence of grandparents, I know I've said it before, I'd like to say it about a thousand more times, it is indeed off the charts. It's, it's incredible. Use it. Use your influence. Be straight with your grandkids about the love of Christ. They, they will listen. All young people today, that age group, that young teen, the high teens and 20s, they will listen to the people our age. If you're a boss, you know, what about your employees? You've seen that. If you're an employee, what about your boss? <laughs> uh, your co-workers, see. These are all questions that people need to ask themselves. Do your friends long for your assurance of God's grace? One guy... I heard him give his testimony. He said, my friend had such an obvious assurance of God's love. And I wanted that. But all I did was make fun of it. Because I didn't have it. <laughs> but I wanted it. One day, he found it. So whoever you are, trust me, you are being watched. I don't know. Yes, we're being watched by God. And yes, Satan and his minions are watching us. Those are real spiritual issues. and We do have to deal with them. But mostly today we need to remember that we are watched every day by people you don't, who don't yet know Christ. When you go to the post office, to the store, when that guy runs into you, when you, those are all chances to show Christ. Do we stand for the truth? The truth? Or do we compromise? Do we strive to meet people's needs just so that they can see Christ? Or do we ignore them like the disciples did with the Samaritans? And I've quoted you here before. I love this saying. Live a life such that people ask why you live the life you do. John ends his story with the strangest little statement. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. I believe, and I hope you do, that every word of Scripture is important and has meaning for us. But come on now, John, what's the point of this? <laughs> Why did you even write it? Well, remember John's purpose. Jesus did lots of miracles. And John tells us he only recorded a few so why is he now reminding us of the other miracle? In the first miracle, Jesus met a desperate need, a desperate social need that would have plagued that young couple all their lives. 
But he did it so quietly, almost no one knew about it. But those who did, believed in him. In the second, Jesus met a life and death desperate need. And once again, in a way that ensured almost no one knew it actually happened. And again, those who did know, believed in him. Jesus often speaks quietly to one or a few hearts. We're going to be Jesus. Maybe we need to speak to one or a few hearts. Incredibly, Jesus gave this man a sign and a wonder in spite of his lack of faith. Perhaps we should meet one person's need even when they don't believe so that they can believe. And here's the big one. What about us? What about the needs we have felt? Here's the question. Is it true that the further we are driven down, the higher God can raise us up? If suffering is the only way for you to look into those eyes burning with divine love, are you willing to pay the price? Let's keep pushing it. Are you glad for what you have suffered simply because it draws you closer to Him? Are you willing to suffer more if it would draw you closer to God? James, the brother of Jesus, starts the body of his letter with this statement, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. That's how he starts. <laughs> what? For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. How could we lack nothing if we are facing trials? Isn't that the point? If you're in a trial, you need something. But wait, that's not the question, is it? Who makes sure we are cared for in the midst of our trials? Peter said it this way, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Suffering makes us like Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When we share in suffering with Christ, we will share in his glory. But here, before that time, when we suffer, we are drawn closer to him through our desperate need. Remember that he will answer every need. He will. <laughs> in every time of suffering. 
And one day we will rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. Why? Are you ready? Because He won't answer our needs anymore. He won't answer our needs anymore. He will remove them. There won't be any needs anymore. All suffering will be gone. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. But we have to ask ourselves, have we now gotten used to the wonder, the miracle that is Jesus? Maybe so much that we don't see him anymore. We need to remember our desperate need for Jesus. Uh, Sometimes he gives us a little reminder, (laughs) a little suffering, and we should be glad when we suffer. For it does bring us closer to him. We also need to be aware of other people's desperation. I think we do well there. Sometimes we must answer other people's needs so that they can truly see Jesus. And one day join us in the new, perfect world where we will never have another desperate need again, ever.